Hi, my name is Pastor Paul Goddard, and I would like to welcome you to the Sunday Sermon podcast series from Bethel Assembly of God. In these podcasts, we will be sharing our Sunday morning messages so that you can keep up with all the teachings that are going on here at Bethel. We want to invite you to join us in person on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 6029 Lapeer Road in Burton, Michigan. Bethel Assembly of God, we are a family. And as family, we grow. And as family, we go. I hope this message blesses and encourages you. Thank you. We want to get into uh, what we call our core values. And these are, there are eight things that we, as Bethel Assembly of God, um, through prayer, um, through talking with you guys, through talking with the pulpit committee, um, before, I, before I came to the church and different people, there are eight things that we landed on that this church values. And I know we could have a list of hundreds of things that the church values, but it's really hard to focus on a hundred things. But eight things, eight things we can focus on. So today's text, it, it really tells us exactly what's at stake when it comes to standing on the teachings of Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, we're in Matthew chapter 7 this week. We're going to be in verses 24 through 27. And I'll give you a moment to, uh, to get there. And while you turn... I want to to take a moment, and it is, I need to congratulate someone and thank somebody really quick for something awesome. Jackie, can you wave? I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I'm not going to have you come up here. I just want you to wave. So Jackie, um, I asked her, I think in November, if she would consider writing birthday cards and, and letters and things to people who have missed or people who we haven't seen in a while so that we can keep in touch with them and they know that we're thinking about them and that they're on our heart. And Jackie has been faithfully doing that. Um, this week, and I have to give it to you um, after service, I received a letter in the mail for Jackie thanking her for birthday cards if we're keeping in touch. It's so important um, that we keep in touch with each other. And, and I do it. I call people. I, I, when I don't see them, when the names we have on the list, I get in touch with them. But it is so important that we all do it. Because as a church family, they just don't want to hear from me. Because a lot of them that I call, they've actually, they haven't even met me yet. Um, I've talked to people who haven't set foot in this church yet, um, either because they're homebound and we haven't got to them, or they're homebound and they don't want to visit right now because of what's going on in the world, and, but they know you. And I can call them, and I can pray with them, and I can tell them I love them, but it means the world coming from you guys, because you're their church family, and they know you. So I want to thank you, Jackie for taking on that responsibility. Can we give her a hand? Thank you so much. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 says, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house 
on a rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be likened to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and its fall was great. Outside of our salvation, the most precious gift that God has given us is that of our testimony. Everybody in here, if you proclaim Jesus as your Savior, you have a testimony from God of how he redeemed you, of how he rescued you, of how he saved you. In fact, in Revelation 12, 11, when it starts talking about the victory over Satan, it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Your testimony isn't just valuable. Your testimony is powerful beyond all things. But time after time after time, the church, Big C Church, not us specifically, but the church has traded the power of its testimony for the chance at temporary gain. Whether it's influence, whether it's politics, prestige, we have exchanged what has an eternal value for things that will, in the end, gain us nothing. It's our responsibility as Christ followers to ensure that there is not a disconnect between what we say we believe and the beliefs that we practice. It's really easy to walk into church Sunday morning and lift your hands up, clap your hands, praise God, listen to the sermon, hug the people at your church and say, I love God and I love Jesus. Walk out the door and then remember, you've got six days now until you have to do it again. And to fall into a pattern of life where those six days become non-church days. Um, Laura was telling me a story yesterday of uh, when she was a little girl in one of her preschool classes who, when they would have mealtime, and when I say little girl, I mean she's like three, um, they would sit down and they would pray or she would pray for her food. Every time, they'd sit down, and they'd pray, and she'd pray for the food, and say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And Laura, Laura was talking to her, and said, oh, that's so sweet. You love Jesus? And, yeah. Do you go to church? Yeah. And you love Jesus? Yeah. But only on Sundays and Wednesdays. Three-year-old little girl. But she could say she loved Jesus. But it's so, it happens so much to us. Our, our words that we use say we love Jesus. And then our actions that back them up don't follow us out the door all the time. And one, one of the biggest areas where the church has hurt itself is in its image. And I know when I say image, you're thinking what it looks like. You know, a lot of people, when we say image, we start talking about how the church physically looks, what we do on the stage, the type of music we play, all that type of thing. When I'm talking about image, I am talking about 
how we live our lives. Because all of, all of this, everything we do up here, Jesus doesn't have a prescription for what songs we sing. He, he never wrote instructions for how big the screens need to be so you can see the words or the mix between hymns and modern worship songs or how many times I need to preach out of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. He never gave us those instructions. The instructions he gave were how to live our lives and how to love each other. See, we're supposed to be known for our love for one another, for our compassion for others, and our passion for Jesus. At times, we exchange all of that as well. I would dare say that right now, the church is known more for what it's against than what it's for. And that's a problem. That is not life-giving. That is not a positive. There are some things with our, uh, our core values. The reason we have core values is because these are the things outside our doctrinal beliefs that we stand on. I want to tell you right now, they're biblically based. We didn't just pick things that sound nice. They are things that we have spent time praying, considering, and loving this church and the community with. The first one is this. Our first core value is we are family. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says, For just as we have many parts in one body, not all parts have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and all are parts of one body. Our first core value, and next week I'm going to have these all printed out for you so you can actually see the details and scriptures attached to them. Our first core value states that we are a home for those who have none, a refuge for the hurting and a place of rest for the weary. We will celebrate together, we will cry together, and we will be a family together. I cannot overstate how much we need each other, and how much we affect each other. Now, the reason that core value doesn't just say, we're going to be a big, happy family together, is because this. How many have a big, happy family all the time? For those of you online, I want you to know there isn't a single hand that went up in the sanctuary. No matter the size of your family, big, small, you, even if, you, even if you're by yourself and you're your family, chances are you're not happy with yourself at some times. We're going to cry together because celebrating together, mourning together, crying together, laughing together is living together. That's life. That's how family operates in that togetherness. See, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. And what could be a more basic function of community than a family?
But the problem is we have undergone a change in this modern cultural normalcy of what uh, social scientists will call radical American individualism. It, it extends itself into our faith and into our churches where many Christians have grown very complacent in their relational accountability to the church. Faith threatens to become an I, not an us, a my God, not our God type of concern. See, Jesus operated in community. The disciples operated in community. The early church operated in community. We will operate as a community. I read this story the other day, and some of you may have seen it. Um, I was really, I was like, I need a good family story, and I couldn't find one, and then somebody, somebody sent this to me, and it says this. It said, my dad has bees. Today I went to his house, and he showed me all of the honey he had gotten from the hives. He took the lid off of a five-gallon bucket, and on top of the honey, there were three little bees struggling. They were covered in sticky honey, and they were drowning. I asked him if we could help them, and he said he was sure they wouldn't survive. I asked him again if we could at least get them out and kill them quickly. After all, he was the one who taught me to put a suffering animal out of its misery. He finally conceded and scooped the bees out of the bucket, put them in an empty Chobani yogurt container, and put the plastic container outside. Because he had disrupted the hive earlier with the honey collection, there were bees all over the place. We put the three little bees in the container on a bench and left them to their fate. My dad called me out a little while later to show me what was happening. These three bees were surrounded by all of their bee sisters, and they were cleaning the sticky, nearly dead bees, helping them to get all of the honey off of their bodies. We came back a short time later, and there was only one little bee left in the container, and she was still being tended to by her sisters. When it was time for me to leave, we checked one last time and all three of the bees had been cleaned off enough to fly away and the container was empty. Those three little bees lived because they were surrounded by family and friends who would not give up on them. Family and friends who refused to let them drown in their own stickiness and resolved to help until the last little bee could be set free. It's a cute story, but it's true. How many know that church, when we're doing it right, can get messy? We've all got problems. We've all got a little stickiness that we're covered in. We've all got problems that are stuck to us, things that we've carried into our, our new life with Christ that we're trying to get rid of. And try as we might, you know, brush it off, dress it up, whatever we do, we can't get rid of it. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a helper, but he has also given us each other. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I can help. That's not funny. You can help. I guess it's funny. We need each other to grow. We do. We need each other to help when, when we're down, when we've got that stickiness, when we're trapped in our sin, when we're trapped in our depression, our anxiety, stuck, when we feel like we're drowning. We need each other to throw a lifeline. 
We are a family. The second core value is this. This is a place of grace. Second core value say, says this. We are thankful recipients of God's marvelous grace, and as such, we will show grace to all people at all times and in all situations. Can anybody tell me what grace is? A definition for grace. Perfect. That's what it says here. I've got that written down. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. What we're talking about today is unmerited favor from a good God. Did you know that in all of the Gospels, Jesus actually never uses the word grace? Doesn't that strike you as odd? After all, we learn that grace and truth came through Jesus, and Jesus is grace personified. So why didn't he talk about it? The grace appears four times in the Gospels, and not once does Jesus actually utter it. In contrast, Jesus says the word law hundreds of times, often in connection with his teaching and his preaching. There's something else that Jesus never said to any individual. Do you know what it was? I love you. Nowhere in the, in the Gospels does Jesus utter the words, I love you. He may not have said it, but in his actions, he showed it. His selfless sacrifice on the cross was the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. On the cross... He wrapped his arms around the world, extended grace, and gave us a big, I love you. But how did he reveal grace? I want you to listen. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I used to think that this verse was really good news for those people who were ill, sick, or might not have been doing well financially, who were struggling. But then I realized something. As I continue to read it and read it and read it, that Jesus is describing all of us. He's talking about every single person on earth. Compared to God, we are all poor and needy. Every one of us is bankrupt of divine life and righteousness. Galatians 3.22 tells us the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Now, there's a, there's a strange phrase in there that says, the year acceptable to the Lord. Now, we have to look at what this actually means. Because to you and me, when something is acceptable, it just means it's meh, it's okay. So to say, this is the year acceptable of the Lord, says, yeah, God likes it, it's okay. It's an all right year. But God means so much more. The translations often lose their power sometimes because we don't always have the same words. 
The year acceptable to the Lord that Jesus spoke about that day in Nazareth was a reference to what they call a jubilee year in the Hebrew tradition. Now, the book of Leviticus prescribes a special year, the jubilee year, in which debts are remitted, lands restored to their original owners, and all slaves are set free. Jesus announced a year of jubilee because because of Jesus, because he came to set the prisoners free. He came to carry our debts. Because of Jesus, we can come home. Because of Jesus, our debts are cleared. Because of Jesus, we reap what we haven't sown. In the year of Jubilee, all slaves are freed. Again, that's us. We were bound, but knowing the truth, we are free. Does not, that not sound like grace to you? Because it does to me. There may be no record of Jesus saying, I love you. But those who met him went away knowing they were dearly loved. To know his love is to know his grace. They are inseparable. God is gracious because God is love. Our third core value is this. We will be others-focused. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, says, Let nothing be done out of strife or conceit, but in humility let each esteem the other better than himself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also, excuse me then, to the interests of others. This core value states that we will always seek to share in Christ's mission to minister to those inside and outside of the faith. Like community, our relationships with each other in the church and outside of it matter to God. What's interesting about relationships is that in order to fully enjoy them, we have to be focused on the other person. We have to be focused on the other half of the relationship. The moment we begin to focus on what we're getting out of them or what we want them to do or how they can better serve us, our joy dies in that moment. And it stops being a relationship. It starts being a business arrangement. People are going to disappoint us and they will fail us. We will fail them. That's why our focus has to be on them. Because when we focus on us, if you disappoint me and you hurt me, then my focus, what it ends up being on, is my hurt. It ends up being on my offense. And it gives me a chance to grow bitterness. It gives me a chance to grow anger. We have to be others-focused. Matthew chapter 20, 25 through 28, relates the story of 
uh, the mother of the disciples, John and James, coming to Jesus, requesting that he sit her sons at his right hand and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom. This, of course, upsets all the other disciples who were probably thinking, I wish my mom was here. I wish my mom would come tell Jesus that, that I'm important, that I'm wonderful. I have a, a friend um, who pastors at my old church, and he always tells me he can play bass, he can play drums. Um, and I'm like, can you sing? And he's like, I can't sing. My mom says I can sing. My mom says I'm the best singer I've ever heard. But I can't sing. You know, our moms usually uh, are our biggest fans. It's great. Mo moms, you're fantastic. We love you. But this is, this is how Jesus replies to this. Jesus called to him and said, You know what the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over him. And those who are great exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you, let them serve you. Whoever would be first among you, let him be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No strategies will completely cause us to be free of relational strife. It's going to happen. But what we see here in Matthew chapter 20 is we're going to have times where we're upset even with people we're closest to. Even with people we walk with on a daily basis that we see miracles happen with, we're going to get upset with them. We're going to have problems. We need Jesus in those situations. We have to invite Jesus into those situations. We also want to put our faith into action. So we try, knowing that we will make mistakes and that God's grace is essential in this quest. Making room for others is an extension of this place being full of grace. When I say we're going to be others-focused, when I say we want this to be a place of grace, what I'm saying is I want to give people room to grow. And that means giving people room to make mistakes without judging. Giving people room to make mistakes without condemning. Giving people a chance to grow in faith and in God and in relationship with the church. Our fourth and our, our final core value that I want to mention today Number four is that we will live generously. And it states this, we will go above and beyond to give sacrificially through time, talent, and finances. Jesus was generous in coming to live with us in human likeness. It's in Philippians 2.7. It's hard for me to imagine moving um, from, from my comfortable home. I mean, think about it. You have to move from your comfortable home. Say you're called to go to a Muslim village in northern Africa, and you have to live in a one-room, mud-plastered home with a dirt floor, and you have to learn all new skills because all of a sudden you have to cook over an open fire. I would feel like I had given up a lot to be with people who may not necessarily be interested 
in hearing what I have to say. That's a missionary's call, is to live their life generously, to give up so that others can hear. I don't know how, how I would respond to that call, but we're all called to be missionaries in our community and in our homes, our schools, our places of work. I don't know if I could do that, what I just read, but Jesus did. Jesus gave up the comforts and joys of an eternal companionship to enter into the messiness of living with sinful and broken humanity the hypocrisy, the violence, the sickness, the greed. Jesus came to share a new vision for living with humility, compassion, and mercy. Jesus demonstrated his generosity by getting involved in making things right here on earth. Wherever Jesus encountered human need, people received more than they hoped for. The disabled paraplegic, he received restored mobility and a relationship with God. The hemorrhaging woman was healed in body and restored to dignity in her community. Jesus did more than expected. Jesus generously risked his life for the sake of God's kingdom, of justice and righteousness on earth as it is in heaven. He risked his life for God's redeeming work in the world in obedience to God's call on his life. The consequence of boldly confronting evil was his death on the cross. Jesus lived generosity. He lived it in his incarnation. He lived it in his ministry. He lived it in his death. Paul says in Philippians 2 that we would let this generosity, that we should let this generosity of Jesus soak into our minds and to permeate our worldview that we should let it transform our selfish, greedy behavior, that we should be generous like Jesus was generous. I want to close with this this morning. Our view of Jesus, it's often wrapped up in our views as a society and as a nation. If you go and you travel the world and you ask different believers who Jesus is, you will get different answers. A lot of them are going to be connected. A lot of them are going to be biblical. But a lot of them are going to reflect what their national traditions are. A lot of them are going to reflect, reflect what they need in their community and what they need in their culture. We, in this country, are favorite images of Jesus. You never, even though you never see these, when you see an image of Jesus in a painting, it's always you know, it's Jesus holding the lamb where it's that one that my mom used to have where Jesus is looking thoughtfully up into the sky. Those are the ones we see, but the ones we like to talk about, the ones that we hold to, we love to use the imagery and thought pattern of Jesus cleansing the temple or of getting after the Pharisees and scolding them. The idea of strongly standing up and shouting down what we think is wrong it appeals to us. Righteous anger for us feels like it needs to happen and that it's our job to exercise it 
on God's behalf. Jesus spent more time teaching what he was for, what the kingdom of God was about, on how we should live our lives and engage with our fellow man than he ever did scolding people, correcting them, or flipping tables. Jesus was known for what he stood for more than what he stood against. When we read the story of Jesus' miracles, people do not flock to somebody who they're afraid is going to whip them, who they're afraid of people invite somebody into their home who is going to come in and they're afraid if something's not right, he's going to wreck their home and tip it all over. Jesus, people came to him because they knew what he was for. They knew he was for them. That he came for them. That he came to heal. That he came to teach. That he came to give new life. That he came to redeem. That he came to rescue. They knew what Jesus was for. Even to the point of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Jesus died because he refused violent self-protection. He was committed to overcoming evil with generosity, hatred with love, of absorbing the violence in a non-resistant martyr's death on a cross. I want to be known for what I value, for what I believe. I want there to be zero ground for confusion when it comes to me, my love for Jesus, my passion for his church, and for its mission. I want our church to be known as a light in the community, a place where the broken can be restored, where the lost are found. Those who are alone can find a family and where there is grace to grow I was thinking about that and what it really meant. And here's what I came up with. I want to be a church that Jesus would want to belong to. I want to be a church where Jesus would come in and see what is happening and say, this is my heart. This is where I want to be. Everything else, everything else doesn't matter. I want this to be a place where Jesus would be. Why? Because if Jesus would be here, everything else that we talk about, we talk about the lost, we talk about the hurt, we talk about the broken. If this is a place where Jesus would be, so will they. So will they. Family, grace, selflessness, generosity. These are the first four of our core values. We're going to share the next four last week and how God wants us to use them to help us grow and help us to reach Burton and beyond for Jesus. Thank you for joining us here today on the Bethel Sermon Series podcast. We want to invite you to join us in person at 6029 Lapeer Road on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. 
You can also find out more information on our Facebook page or go to our website at www.bethelfamily.live. That's www.bethelfamily.live for more information. God bless. Have a great week. Subscribe and join us back for next week. Thank you.